This hour is Hiram Kemp. Um, Hiram Kemp is uh, a guy that went through the Florida School of Preaching, graduated in 2016, but also went directly from graduating there to preaching and teaching there. That says something special about the man that just went through the education, that they saw something special in him enough to hire him right off the spot. And uh, you'll see why in just a moment uh, of the very incredible talents that God has blessed him with, all to God's glory. I'm sure Hiram would agree with that as well. Hiram also has a degree in criminal justice, as well as a couple of master's degrees as well uh, in various fields. Um, we're in for a treat today, uh, and put on uh, your thinking caps, open up your Bibles, you're going to need them. Um, my Jesus would never is the topic, an engaging topic. We're looking forward to our brother Hiram on this. Can preach the word to us. Preach the word. I am aware of the fact that the only Bruno that most people know today is Bruno Mars, but the man on the screen is not Bruno Mars. His name is Bruno Bauer. He lived in the 1800s. He was a German historian, and he and a few of his friends, they got together and sort of concocted this idea that Jesus of Nazareth never really existed. said, you know, Jesus is probably just the construct of the Roman and Greco world, Greco-Roman world that the first century disciples grew up in. People just created this Jesus guy. He never really existed. Well, shortly after his death and even during the time of his life, scholars and historians and different people rushed in and said, wait a minute, Bruno, you missed this one. Even people that don't believe that Jesus is Christ. People like Bart Ehrman have written books and they've said things like, you just can't explain the explosion of Christianity in the first century, the entire change that took place with Jews in Palestine. Jesus Christ really did exist. And you could look at historians and you could look at other individuals who weren't Christians that document the fact that a man named Jesus of Nazareth really did live in Palestine in the first century and that he really did have a group of followers and taught some of the things that he taught. However... While that excites us some, that shouldn't be the end for us as Christians and those that will follow Jesus. Because this idea that Jesus existed and that there really is a Jesus of Nazareth, it means different things to different people. In discussion boards, on Facebook, in barbershops, in checkout lines, everywhere, people are talking about Jesus. But the more you talk to people, everybody's not talking about the same person. Jesus has been sliced into so many different pieces by so many different people. And so sometimes we begin a discussion with someone and we may mention the name of Jesus only to find out shortly into the discussion they don't mean the same Jesus that we mean, that this is a different individual altogether. And that's not new. Turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 16. People have always misunderstood Jesus. This has always been a problem for some. In Matthew 16 and verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples... He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they gave various answers. Some said that you're Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then, of course, he says to them, Who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Peter gives that inspired testimony. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What I want you to see, though, is this. When Jesus said, Who do people say that I am? The various answers that were given. Some said you remind them of Jeremiah, or John the Baptist, or Elijah. They all saw the same Jesus. They heard the same lessons, they saw the same miracles, and yet they all came to different erroneous conclusions. Now, at the end of this lesson, if you say, I remind you of Jeremiah, that's a compliment way too high. But for Jesus, it's an insult. 
So as we talk to people about Jesus, people have come up with different ideas, and I want to run through a few today. I think I have seven of the different ideas that people have about Jesus, and it'd be pretty weird if I did this the whole lesson. So when I say my Jesus would never, you know I'm saying that pretty tongue-in-cheek this morning. But we want to look at this idea that my Jesus would never, and then we're going to get to the punchline of who the true Jesus of Scripture really is. Number one, some people say my Jesus would never claim to be God. Now, there are people that say they believe in Jesus Christ, that they believe that a man named Jesus existed, but he's not really the Messiah, and they really mean it to be a compliment, but it's sort of a backhand compliment. It's like a woman coming to a man and saying, does this dress make me look fat? And he says, well, not as fat as you used to, or something like that. You know, that really doesn't help. Or you drive pretty good for somebody your age or something. You see, that's a bad. People, when they say that about Jesus... Well, he existed, he was a good moral teacher, he was a good guy, but he wasn't Christ, he wasn't the Messiah. It's really an insult. This started in the first century. Jesus taught among people, and in places like John 7 and verse 15, they would say, how does he know these things, having never learned letters? Or Mark 6 and verse 2, this man's the carpenter's son, and Mary, and aren't his brothers and sisters here with us? Surely he couldn't be Christ. You see, in their mind, their Jesus would never claim to be God. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus that bursts forth from the pages of the New Testament is described this way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made in Him. Was the life of life. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness can't overcome it. That Word became flesh and tabernacled among men. You see, that's the Jesus of Scripture. He's the Jesus that was spoken to about through Mary when God said to Mary, you'll bring forth the son and you'll call his name Jesus. This is the quotation from Isaiah 7, 14. It'll be God with us. Though people that are far removed from the first century world have tried to make Jesus into their own image and say different things about Jesus, Jesus never really claimed to be God. His followers came after him and they sort of made him do that. The people that live closest to Jesus, this wasn't lost on them. When Jesus said, I'm one with the Father, and he called God his Father in John 5, 18, they tried to kill him because they knew what he was saying. When he quotes Exodus 3, 14, and he says, that's really about me. Before Abraham was, I am. That is, I'm the only one that has ever preexisted. They tried to kill him and pick up stones because they knew what he was saying. The true Jesus of Scripture is always claimed to be God. Don't ever believe in the Jesus that somebody says, well, he's a good man, and he's a good rabbi, and that's true for you. Listen, identity theft is popular, right? Among young children, people take their social security numbers and try to do things. Seniors, people call them up and say, we've got different suit stakes, and they try to take their identity and do different things. People try to do that with Christ. Don't let them do it. Don't believe in a Jesus who doesn't claim to be God. Now, before I move to the next one, how do we know that's true? How do I know that the true Jesus of Scripture is really God? This list is far from exhaustive, but I just want to go through some of these. Jesus forgave sin. Only God can do that. You remember when they brought in the paralytic, the man was paralyzed on the bed, and they really wanted to get him to Jesus. They broke down the roof, letting his friends. The first thing Jesus said to him is this, Son, your sins be forgiven you. Now, who can forgive sins but God only? Aren't sins against God, and how dare this rabbi from Nazareth say this? But if he's God, he can say it, and he is. Jesus is God because he claimed to be one with the Father. John 10 and verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father, we're one. We're on equal playing fields. You see, we say Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but I hope we mean it this way, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't God Jr. That's not the case. He's not God's Son in the same way that Andre Kemp is my son. He's God's Son in the fact that that's a messianic title, which means he is the anointed one of God who was promised from the Old Testament. Jesus receives the same honor as the Father. 
John 5, 23. Jesus says, whoever honors the Son honors the Father. And that is, to dishonor the Son is to dishonor the Father. Somebody says, I really believe in God. Oh, you do. What do you think about Jesus? Well, I'm really not interested in that. That's actually disrespect to God. Because God, the Father, and Jesus, God the Son, they're one in purpose and function and in work. Jesus has all authority. Matthew 28, 18. When Jesus rose from the grave, he said, All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The only place we'll ever find authority where Jesus doesn't have it, if we could go somewhere besides heaven or besides earth. When you figure that out, you'll get up here and do the lesson. Anyway, um, Jesus is the Alpha, the Omega, and the Almighty, Revelation 1.8. All terms used to describe God. Sometimes we talk to our religious friends and neighbors. My mailman was a Jehovah's Witness. And he and I were in a discussion one time, and he said, you and I believe in the same thing. We believe the same thing about Jesus. And we started into this discussion about who Jesus really is. And he eventually saw, oh, we're not talking about the same person. And he wanted to go to John 1 and all of these places, but you're going to have a hard time explaining how Jesus is Alpha, Omega, and Almighty. Run that reference back to Genesis 17, 1, when God spoke to Abraham and he said, I am the Almighty God. That's Jesus. Jesus is God because he's called God, and you could look at all of those references, but just for one, John 20, 28, Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he holds everything together. God didn't just create the world, but he actually holds it together. In him, all things consist. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Sometimes when Jesus was preaching, like I'm teaching at this moment, people would be thinking different things. And when he said to the paralyzed man in Mark 2, your sins be forgiven, Mark 2 and verse 8 says, The Pharisees reasoned in their hearts, How can this man forgive sins? No man can forgive sins but God only. And Jesus just spoke out loud and answered that question. Question, how does he know that? How does he know what they're thinking and answers their question before they pose it with their mouth? One answer. He's God. And then in the last place, he receives worship. You try to worship angels in the Bible, and they forbid it. You try to worship man, they do the same. You worship Jesus. He receives it, accepts it, and we exalt in him because he's God and worthy of worship. My Jesus would never claim to be God is not the Jesus of Scripture. Number two, my Jesus would never claim to reign over human sexuality. We're in a gender war. I don't know if you know that or not, but people are having a hard time deciding whether they want to be male, female, or other. The good news is they don't have to decide because God already made that decision. Sometimes we get in discussions with people, though, about this and about transgenderism and the different parts about humanity and sexuality and that sort of thing, and we quote passages, and rightly so, like Genesis 1.27. God made man in his image, and he made them male and female, and we would think that the discussion would stop there, but I know people, and maybe you know some too, who say, you know, it'd be a good idea if Christians would just stick with what Jesus said. Don't you have a Bible with red letters? And would you show me the passage, by the way, where Jesus ever condemns these different gender ideas? Turn your Bible to Matthew 19. Look at Matthew 19. This is a, a series of questions when Jesus was asked about divorce and Jesus wanted to talk about marriage. I think that's interesting. When people talk to Jesus about divorce, he wants to talk about marriage. And that's how it really ought to be. But in Matthew 19 and verse 4, Jesus says, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And there you go. Jesus says... You've got two genders, and God decides that at birth. People don't get to decide that later. I've seen the snarky shirts where people have the different genders on them, and they'll say different things about what they want to be. You know, if you try to go online and order one of those shirts, you know the two genders they offer them in? Male and female. 
That's all they've got. You can male size or female, that's all they've got. And Jesus has been saying that for almost 2,000 years. He says, listen, at the beginning, God made a male and female. And said, for this cause, a man will leave father and mother, cleave to his wife. The two will be one flesh. What God has put together, let not man put asunder. But we need more than Matthew 19, 4. And we have it. It is not just that Jesus says something about human sexuality. That's not enough. I worded this specifically. He seeks to reign over it. That is, Jesus, there isn't a place over all the human existence, over any acreage of our heart over which Christ does not shout, mine. We can't do what we want with our bodies. We can't just live how we want. Jesus had shocking things to say about human sexuality and about what we do. He would say things like this. You've heard it said about them of old time, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better to enter into life handicapped than to be fully well and be cast into eternal hellfire. And likewise with the human eye, if sin clings so closely to you that it's as close as a hand or an eye, Jesus says, divorce it. You can't go to heaven that way. You see, that's more than just God make the male and the female. That's Jesus entering into our business and saying, I reign over human sexuality, and you can't do what you want. Later on in Matthew 19, he'll talk about marriage, and we had a great lesson on that last evening. I won't rehash all of that, but he does say this. You can't divorce your spouse for any cause except to be for marital unfaithfulness. People that say, my Jesus would never reign over human sexuality, they just have their own Jesus. I've got two kids. My wife, Brittany, is here with me. She's heard everything I've had to say before, so she's not in this lesson. But anyway, she's here. Our kids are with her mom in Daytona Beach, Florida. We live in Lakeland. Daytona is about an hour and a half away, so sometimes when I get to go different places, we'll take them there. They enjoy it. We get to have some time together. Do you know why grandchildren love going to their grandparents' homes? Two words. No rules. That's it. All the candy, all the goodness, and then they just fatten them up and ship them right back off to mom and dad, and it's going to take us two weeks to reprogram them. When we get home, that's why they love it. You know why people want a Jesus who doesn't reign over human sexuality? They want to do what they want. They say the human heart wants what it wants, and if Jesus won't give it to me, I'll fire him and hire my own. And scripture says you can't do it. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the passages in the New Testament that talk about human sexuality, but there are a host of them. Romans 1, 26 and 27, Paul calls homosexuality unnatural, and people that do it are worthy of the punishment that will be theirs. Sodomy is condemned in 1 Timothy 1, 10. Paul says the law is to govern individuals like that. You can't do what you want. It's as if the Holy Spirit anticipates this error when he says, don't be deceived. That is, people will come along and tell you, it's all right, God will accept you, just come as you are. Don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators nor idolaters, homosexuals, and he lives not, this isn't the Holy Spirit's favorite sin, it's just one of many. And he says, you can't go to heaven that way, and such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, justified, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Over and over, the New Testament stresses this idea. Jesus not only has something to say about human sexuality, but he seeks to reign over it. Before we move on to the next point, I do want to say this. We should approach this in a balanced way. There are people that genuinely struggle with this sin. And I don't mean to poke fun at anybody because they may struggle in a way that I don't. I just mean to say, as with every other sin, we can't give people license to practice things that they struggle with. A man may say about his son, so long as I've known him, he's always stolen other people's Hot Wheels. 
And now he's 20 years old, and that Corvette reminds him of a Hot Wheel, and the best he could do is break open your window and take it. Surely it deserves to be his. What would we say about that kid? We got silver bracelets with your name on them, right? You can't just do what you want to do. There's some governing. You can't do that. You may be tempted with the thing, but that doesn't give you license to practice it. When we sympathize with people in this sin, I've had people very close to me who struggle with this sin and who have since come out of it. I just mean to say, there's no temptation which is overtaking you that's not common to man. But God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but will, with the temptation, make a way of escape so that you can bear with it. We ought to come alongside people that struggle with this and other sins and say, listen, everybody goes through temptations. And yours may not be ours, and we sympathize with you, but you can't please God and remain in it. He'll help you out of it, and he'll walk with you all the way to the judgment and pardon you if you turn from it. But you don't have his permission to stay in sin and receive his pardon. Number next, my Jesus would never send anyone to hell. Now, the more funerals you go to, the more you're going to be impressed with the idea that more people believe in heaven than they do in hell. I don't know if you know. You know, as soon as somebody dies, even if this person on their own never expressed any desire to go to heaven, people say, well, I know he's in a better place. Nobody even said he wanted to go, but he's in a better place. And most people believe that most people, when they die, they go to heaven. Turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and notice what Jesus says in verse 21 down through verse 23. This idea that my Jesus would never send anybody to hell is just not the Jesus that we meet in Scripture. In verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Many will come to me in that day and say, Have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name cast out devils, and in your name done many wonderful works? And I'll profess unto them, Depart from me, you that practice lawlessness, for I never knew you. The Jesus of Scripture says everybody's not going to heaven. In the verses on the screen, there's this judgment scene in Matthew 25. And in verse 41, Jesus is going to actually say these words to people. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal condemnation, but the righteous into eternal life, Matthew 25, 46. In fact, when Jesus talked about eternal punishment, the reality of it is, and this doesn't make me happy to say it's just biblical truth, Jesus said more people are going in the opposite direction of heaven. In Matthew 7, 13, and 14, Jesus said, Enter in at the straight or the narrow gate, because wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and the multitudes rush into it. Because straight is the gate, difficult is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Now, let me preface this with this point. God wants everybody to go to heaven. Do you understand that? You've never looked on the face of an individual that God doesn't want to go to heaven. He wants everybody to go. In fact, that's in part why the sun, why the sun rose this morning. God's allowing the world to continue so that more people can make their lives right with him and go to heaven. Sometimes we say, oh, the world's pretty bad. Jesus must be coming soon. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the evidence actually tips the other way, that God is allowing more people to become Christians so that fewer people will be lost in the end. That's what the Bible teaches from cover to cover. God wants everybody to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4, but not everybody will be. Somebody says, well, if that's the case, and if that's true, if Jesus really would send people to hell, and my Jesus, who would never send people to hell, is not the Jesus of Scripture, I don't want anything to do with him. Then if you've proven that case, and that's true, well, then I just couldn't follow a Jesus who would send people to hell for all eternity. That just isn't right to me. That's unjust. Can you imagine the football coach who never benched anybody? Can you imagine the judge who never sentenced anybody, the teacher who never failed a student, 
And that might sound good until those people who have been habitually let off the hook become your next door neighbors. It's all fun and games when nobody pays the price for anything they've done until we suffer the consequences of people who have been told, do whatever you want, nothing's going to happen. When you think about the subject of people going to hell, if you must be angry, don't be angry at God. It's like firemen coming on the scene of a burning house and they're running in trying to save everybody in this family and they're crying and they're begging people to get out of this house as they see it coming to its end. And there's one man in the corner clinging to an old piece of furniture and he just won't have it any other way and the firefighters are begging with him and pleading him and we're running out of time here and he feels as if he just must stay. And it's not that Jesus is just sending people to hell. He actually came into our world which was set on fire with sin. And through the New Testament, he begs and pleads with us, get out of this world, it's burning down. And if we must cling to the old furniture of sin and righteousness and of rebellion toward God, it gets to the point where Jesus just has to say, we've got to go because there are other people that need to be saved. Jesus says, God can destroy both body and soul in hell, Matthew 10, 28. He says people will be punished in fire, Luke 13, 28. The Jesus of Scripture is the Jesus that says one day we're going to spend eternity in one of two places. That's either in heaven with God or in a hell separated from God. Number next, my Jesus would never eat with sinners. I want you to look at Luke 15. Turn your Bible to Luke 15, 1 and 2, because this is the Jesus that some people have in mind. And this is um, it's rather unfortunate. My Jesus would never eat with sinners. You know the parable of the prodigal son, right? It's really the parable of the elder brother. It comes out of this idea. In Luke 15, 1 and 2, Then drew near him all the publicans and sinners to hear him, and the scribes and Pharisees murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now listen, the Pharisees knew the Old Testament, at least by rote memory, better than most of us will ever know it. They knew a Messiah was coming. However, their Messiah would never eat with sinners. On one occasion, Jesus was in a Pharisee's house. His name's Simon in Luke 7. And you remember the woman sort of busts in and lavishly weeps on Jesus and washes his feet with her hair and this perfume. And Simon says in Luke 7, 39, if this man were a prophet, he couldn't be. He would know that this woman's a sinner. If your idea of Jesus is that if he were living today, he would always be with the religious people. And he would always vote inside like you do, and he would always think the things that you think, and he would always watch what you would watch, and he would never go with those people, and he would never be seen with those folks. You might have a Jesus made in your own image and not the one of Scripture. Now, listen, I know that the Bible teaches evil companions corrupt good morals, but appreciate the fact that Jesus was with the most evil companions there ever were, and he wasn't corrupted. 1 Corinthians 15 is about surrendering thoughts to those individuals that will cause us to compromise. It is not saying we must never deal with other people because they have different ideas and sin is sort of like the cooties, you know? If they touch you, you catch it. That's not what the Bible teaches. Listen, sometimes people say this about you. You'll become a Christian, maybe at a young age, and you start trying to live right and do the right things, and somebody may say these words. I didn't grow up in the church, and I've got friends from various backgrounds, and sometimes you'll hear terminology like this. Oh, you've changed your life. You think you're what? You think you're better than me. Listen, Jesus is the only one who ever lived who really was better than everybody. But nobody ever said it about him. There's something about the way he interacted with people. They never got the idea, and he really was better, far superior. They never believed that this man thinks he's better than us, and yet he says, which one of you convinced me of sin? My Jesus would never eat with sinners. He's not the Jesus of Scripture. 
Beware, one of my teachers at the Florida School of Preaching said, beware of the monastic life. Beware of secluding ourselves from everybody, getting into our own little cubby holes where we never interact with the world and we never want to hear what they have to say or see what they think. Yes, we need to make sure we don't compromise as we're around different people, but don't cut off totally your friends who are Christians. I just want you to think about this. If you cut them off and if you don't talk to them about Jesus, who will? If we don't engage them at the football fields, don't you know for every virtue that we back away from, from every righteous conversation that we don't have, the devil stands ready to step in and pollute their minds with other ideas and beliefs? I'm just saying that the Jesus of Scripture, he ate with sinners. Can you think of the people who wouldn't have been influenced the way that they were if Jesus never ate with sinners? If he never interacted with people who were other or different from him? Zacchaeus was more than a wee little man, right? He was a tax collector. He stole people's money. In Luke 19, Jesus says, as Zacchaeus comes down from the tree and Jesus comes into his house, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because this man is also a son of Abraham. And the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost people like Zacchaeus. You can imagine the remarks that people had as they said, how could he be eating with this man who's manipulated his own people, who's taken advantage of them, Jesus said, I came for people like that. Surely the man on the thief on the cross had a checkered past in Luke 23, 42 to 43. And Jesus said to that man, this day you'll be with me in paradise. The woman at the well in John 4 had five husbands. She could have had a starting five basketball team and one on the bench, right? The one you have now is not your husband. And Jesus talked with her, learned about her, and she evangelized the entire city of Samaria. John 4, 29, come see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Now fast forward to Acts chapter 8. And when Philip goes there preaching Christ in the kingdom, how were they already ripe and ready for it? At least in part because of this woman. And that happened because Jesus ate with the sinner. The Jesus of Scripture engaged people where they were, and that's what we've got to do. If we're going to follow in his steps, we should take inventory of our lives and say this. Who did Jesus spend most time with? With, with disciples or non-disciples? The answer is yes. Yes, it was both, right? Who do we spend all of our time with? How many friends, I mean genuine friendships, do you have with people that aren't Christians? I agree that our closest friends should be those of like precious faith. But I also agree that the monastic life helps us to create caricatures of the enemy. And we say things that non-Christians believe that they don't really believe. And we don't really know how they think. And we don't really know that their hearts are broken and that they're looking for a savior. And if we don't engage them, we'll never be able to help them. The greatest man who ever lived. If the people that flock to him run from us, we might be doing it wrong. And the my Jesus would never eat with sinners is not the Jesus of Scripture. Next, my Jesus would never claim to be the only way to God. Some people say, well, Jesus is fine so long as Jesus is on the same level as Buddha or Muhammad or anything like that. But don't exalt Jesus to be the only way to God. Do you realize how offensive this statement is? It's either true or it's not. But I don't know if you've ever sat with this idea that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Can you see why this Jesus would be attractive to some people? Because if what Jesus says in John 14, 6 is true, there will be nobody in heaven who hasn't come to God through Jesus Christ. We don't know any saved people out of a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. Hebrews chapter 5, and notice verse 8 and verse 9. 
That text says, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them who what? That obey him. Only the people that obey Jesus have eternal life through him as the son. Those are the only people that benefit from his sacrifice. Jesus claimed to be the only way that people can be made right with God. And while that's offensive, it is absolute truth. It isn't the fact. It, this isn't true. Well, you're only a Christian because you were born in America. And if you were born in some other place, under some other system, that would be your religion. And that's what you would believe. When Jesus spoke the words in John 14, 6, and when Peter echoes those words in places like Acts 4, verse 12, and he says, there's salvation and none other. The point is this one. The only people that will ever hear well done from God are those that have done well in believing that Christ is God's son and submit to what he says. And so the Jesus that would never, ever claim to be the only way to God is not the Jesus of Scripture. Next. Uh, I think my clicker's giving me some issue, but we've got this, right? All right. My Jesus would never claim to have a problem with religious division. My Jesus would never be dissatisfied with religious division. A lot of people believe this. This is how most people view Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus gave you and I the New Testament. But surely he didn't believe that all the people and all of the places would be able to come and see it alike. I mean, look at all of these different interpretations and all of the different ideas that people have and all of the churches and all of the good people in those churches. And Jesus would never be dissatisfied with religious division. Everybody's just doing their own thing in their own way. But how dare you suggest that Jesus is somehow upset with that? I want you to go to John 17. And I know we're familiar with this text, but I want you to see it from this vantage point. Go to John 17, 20 and 21 and notice what Jesus says about religious division and how he prayed against it. John 17 and verse 20, Jesus is praying there before he goes to the cross. And he says, neither pray out for these alone. Before them also, which will believe on me through their word, that they might all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world might believe that you've sent me. Now, we quote that verse, and we talk about Jesus was against denominationalism, and he was. But I want you to appreciate that Jesus says our unity should reflect that of his with the Father. As you, Father, are in me. Now, if you can squeeze some division between the Father and the Son, then you can justify denominationalism. Jesus says, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, I want them also to share that oneness with us that the world might believe that you've sent me. When we list the reasons why people don't believe today, may we never forget this one because of the religious division that persists in our world. Because on every corner, there's a church or a group of people claiming to believe in Christ that believe something other than what the New Testament teaches. Jesus is always disgusted with religious division. The Bible says that he promised to build the church in Matthew 16, 18. The Bible goes on to say there's only one church in Ephesians 4, verse 4. The church is his body, Ephesians 1, 22 to 23. When Jesus is on the cross, it's as if he's at the spiritual cash register purchasing the church, Acts 20 and verse 28, with his blood. I don't know if you like the shirt you have on today or not, but if you got to the cash register and you said, how much is it? And they gave you a jar and they said blood. I don't know if you would have bought it or not. But when Jesus saw you and he saw me, the price was blood and he paid it. Now, all that means nothing. If a few people can get together, open up a storefront, have a nice catchy title and just start their own church and claim that Jesus is somehow OK with that. The truth is, he's not. 
when people say things like, well, I grew up in the Church of Christ, but I don't really think that God cares about whether or not we worship with the instrument or not. That's just what I've been taught. They haven't read passages like John 4, 24, where God is actually looking down, according to Jesus, seeking people to worship in spirit and in truth. When people say things like, I don't think it really matters if we immerse people in water for the forgiveness of sins, or they say the sinner's prayer, I think you're getting hung up on the details. They haven't read passages like Acts 2.38, which connects the forgiveness of sins to baptism, and you can't separate those. When people say things like, one church is as good as another, and in fact, Hiram, you create division by preaching what you're preaching. They haven't read what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 1 and 3. When he begged the Christians, stick together, be unified, be one. Don't ever apologize for being a New Testament Christian. Don't ever be ashamed. Now, we're not better than anybody because we believe the truth, but it still is the truth, and we shouldn't apologize for it. Your parents have brought you up, and you've known the New Testament way of Christianity. There may come a day when somebody presents this Jesus, and they say things like, it doesn't really matter what church you go to. That's just what you've been taught believing. Don't ever believe that. My only regret in becoming a Christian, my only regret, is that I did it too late. I was 20 years old before I had ever known what many of you already know. Praise God for it. Don't, don't apologize for it. The Jesus of Scripture has always been anti-religious division, and he died so that people would no longer be separated based on race and based on their economic status or education. And so we've got to submit to the Jesus of Scripture who prays that all men might be one. Listen, nobody has to go church shopping. Aren't you glad about that? I hate shopping, right? I like to say I go and buy things. I don't shop. I go and buy things. My wife shops, right? And every man has been on the mourner's bench outside of some place. It's his wife shops, right? Listen, you don't have to go church shopping. You don't have to do it. When you obey the gospel and you confess with a penitent heart that Jesus is Christ and you're immersed in water, simultaneously at that moment, God adds you to the church. Now, whatever congregation you assemble with, that may be in proximity to your house and all those things, but you and I don't have to go church shopping. God's removed that, and we ought to be happy about that. We can become a part of the church that God designed, that Jesus purchased, and that he built. The last one. I want to introduce you to Alvin Kennard. He was arrested at 22 years old because he stole $50 worth of bread. Well, to be exact, $50.75 worth of bread. He spent 36 years in prison. He was in Alabama. Now, we can get into a discussion later about whether he should have been in prison. The reason why he was in prison for 36 years was because at that time in Alabama, after your fourth offense, there was nothing else that could be done. No possibility of parole. You were just sentenced to this life sentence in prison. In the early 2000s, this was overturned, and they decided that that's a pretty crazy law, And we're gonna, but it took a while before this became retroactive, before it went back and covered people like Mr. Alvin here. And so, two weeks ago, he stood before a judge, and she said, I'm so sorry that you've been in prison this long for this small infraction, and he's on his way home. $50 worth of bread, 36 years of his life is gone. He can't get it back, but he can start new. A small infraction, a big penalty, there's pardon. Some people say, my Jesus would never forgive my sins. And if there is a lie about Jesus, that is probably the worst of them all, it's this one. If Jesus came to do anything, and he came to do several things, he came to forgive sins. As he sat around the table observing the Passover with his disciples, he said, this is my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. You know, Jesus never did need a sin that he couldn't forgive or a sinner that he couldn't pardon. 
I know it sounds humble when people say, I've done so many things and so much of this and that, that Jesus could never forgive me. But it's really pride disguises humility. To suggest that I've been so bad that when the blood of Christ comes into contact with my sins, the best that it can do is turn around because it's somehow overpowered. Because I fornicated, or I lied, or I sold drugs, or I cheated on my taxes, or I've been a bad son, or a bad daughter, or a bad father. May the thought perish. I was in Peru doing mission work in July, and there was an older man on the side of the road. He was in a wheelchair, and he had his radio there, and he was listening to the soccer game that was going on. And we approached him, and we started talking to him about the Bible. And then it dawned on us, hey, why are you out here? And it, it was around the time of Peru's Independence Day, and they were about to have a festival. And most of the people were at the different events, and so we got just no answers at the of the door. But why are you here? Why aren't you there? He said, well, listen, I was a terrible father growing up. And I didn't do right by my kids, and I wasn't all that I should have been, and now I'm handicapped, and I've had some things happen to me. I put way too much time into my work, and I've lived a pretty bad life. My kids have since then taken me, and they help me a little bit, but sometimes they just bring me out here, and they sit me on the edge of the road. And they've said to me that this is God's punishment for the way that I've behaved. Because I was such a bad father, God's repaying me for the, the wrong that I've done, and this is just my lot in life. And we tried to convince them, and we tried to plead with them that God doesn't do that. I, even I, am he which blots out your sins for my own name's sake, Isaiah 43, 25. God has the best memory of anybody who has ever lived, and he chooses to practice willful amnesia with my sin and with yours. The Bible says, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. Will I remember no more, Hebrews 8, 12. It is not that God doesn't know that I've sinned, but as I come to him in Christ, he chooses to blot it out of his remembrance and remember my sins no more. If any man knew this, it was Paul. You remember what Paul said about himself? He was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but he obtained mercy because he did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of his Lord was exceedingly abundant upon him in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance everywhere. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm chief. And he says, he saved Paul. Why Paul? Because Paul is an eternal pattern for everybody who, who would ever live, that nobody would ever be able to say, I'm too bad, God can't save me. Paul says, I'm a direct testimony against that claim. Jesus doesn't repel sinners, he rather invites them, just as they are, not to stay the way they are, but to be forever changed. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest unto your souls. The Jesus who would never forgive your sin and mine is just not the Jesus of Scripture. God hadn't left it up to us. He reveals Jesus to us, and it's the same Jesus who made us in his image. But we can't make him in ours. Bruno Bauer and others who said that Jesus never existed have long been debunked. The New Testament and other historical documents prove without a doubt that a man named Jesus of Nazareth really did live in the first century. And while that's great news, we've got to go further than that. Jesus didn't just exist, but we've got to make sure that it's the Jesus of the New Testament because there are all types of Jesuses in every different corner of our country. And we've got to come to know him through the New Testament and preach the Jesus that would never compromise with the image of the world. And that's the Jesus that God wants everybody to come and know. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it. Man, thank you, Hiram. What an excellent, excellent study that was. Um, saturated with scripture. Uh, that's the kind of Jesus that I want to serve, is the one that cares for us, that gives us 
um, opportunities is balanced, and Scripture speaks so much of that which Hiram brought to us. Let's bow with, uh, for a word of prayer. I'm not sure if this is on, but let's bow anyway. Father God, we love you, and we're so grateful for Jesus. Even though we are so undeserving, even though we have uh, fallen short so many times, we're grateful for the fact that your, uh, your son decided to uh, go to the cross so that we can have forgiveness. We're so grateful to you for giving us that ability, that offering, offering that to us so that we could be closer with you. Help us to take advantage of that, Lord, uh, and to draw closer with you every day. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Be back in here at 11 for our next session. Thank you, guys. Thank you very, very much.